welcoming you to Be In The Know, where in this episode we say forget the title race, forget top four, forget the conversation, who is best, Messi or Ronaldo, because there is only one thing that football needs to know right now, that fans are finally coming home. I hope this is the last one of the last times I have to say this. We bring you journalists allowed behind closed doors. Simon Peach, the chief football writer for PA, covering Manchester United and England. We'll, of course, be looking ahead to Chelsea versus Manchester United. Got Simon Johnson with us covering Chelsea for The Athletic, of course, had his finger on the pulse of the Frank Lampard sacking. And James Nursey, we are looking to Leicester. Are they rising like a phoenix from the flames five years after that fairy tale title? Here's the Daily Mirror sports journalist in the Midlands. Tell me, boys, was it a West Ham boy band celebration when you heard this news finally that the fans could be back? Peachy, I'm going to go back to you. Old Trafford, fans back in there. What does that mean? It would mean a hell of a lot. The club's been ready for a long time to welcome fans back, but things just haven't fallen right. It's one of those grounds that hasn't had anyone, not even when 2,000 fans were allowed in. It looks like they won't get fans in at all this season because the, the date that the fans are allowed in is the weekend after they'll have their last home game. Um, but, I mean, if they reach the FA Cup final, they'll have supporters there, they think, then there's the Europa League final they'll hopefully be getting to whether travel is allowed at that point, it's all a bit unclear, but it's fantastic news. It's a real boost. Um, I'm sure I'll speak for all of us on here that it's been a privilege to be behind closed doors, but it just isn't the same. Simon, to put it in context of just the teams that have missed out, that haven't been able to have fans there, especially those newly promoted clubs, the likes of Leeds United, but also those clubs that might get the real lifeline on the last game of the season, the likes of Fulham. It, it's a huge, um, a huge fillip in terms of their belief, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you only had to sort of see how in those few games where clubs were allowed fans in the difference it made, how to, how the players seemed to be inspired and, and respond. I'm going to be quite interested, actually, to see how the teams that perhaps will be at a disadvantage react to this. Um, for example, Newcastle, who have to go to Fulham on the final day, which could be a relegation decider. Um, what exactly their take on sort of suddenly Fulham fans being allowed in to uh, to rule their team onto a potential crucial victory? But because it could have quite a significant uh, little uh, say in the game. But I, I'm just delighted, as as Peachy just said, that that fans could be back in because it's just not the same when you go to games. It's 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 football at fifty percent. Um, yes, we we've been very lucky to have games at all, but. It's just not the same experience for the players and the journalists and anyone and the managers. I cannot remember a match day I have been to. Every single match day we have this conversation of how awful it is. It never stops. James, um, we are fingers crossed praying for your broadband collectively um, because there's another big, big moment. Kids are going back to school and you've been juggling it all, aren't you? Because your, brand, your broadband's homeschooling your kids at the moment right now, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm sure I'm not alone, but I've certainly, it's been a, a stressful time. I wouldn't be in a, ru a rush to repeat. And when the uh, the prime minister was was running through the, the roadmap, if you like, I'm not sure what date I was looking for first, whether it was the fans going going back into stadiums or, or the kids going back to school, but both are very, very good news from, from where I'm sitting. And um, 
you know, I, I dare say a few footballers probably feel the same with, with young families. You know, they will have had a lot going on uh, domestically as, as well as professionally. But um, as the guys have said there, we, we can't wait for the supporters to be back. I don't know about the boys, but ahead of the big matches with the in the big stadiums with the huge crowds, you, you as a journalist and, and as a supporter going into those stadiums, you actually get a bit of an adrenaline rush before the games. It's so exciting and we've been missing that. And I'm sure the players have missed that and it must have affected individuals' performances. I know we've seen some strange results uh, with teams doing better away from home, of course, but 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 I, I think it's the dynamics of fans coming back is going to have a huge impact and pretty much all entirely positive stuff. And all the grassroots in the in the Midlands as well, not just grassroots, but lower down the leagues. This is an absolute lifeline, isn't it? I mean, at least we know for next season, that's the hope. Yeah, I mean, that's the slight frustration with all this. Um, it's kind of come too late for the championship clubs, isn't it? Um, uh, I think the season finishes on the 8th of May uh, and, and we're not going to have fans back into the 17th. So the lower league clubs, I suspect, will need some extra funding to get through this season. With the possibility of some pilot games having supporters back in, you could see fans coming back in for the, for the playoffs. Uh, and I know um, the EFL are looking at getting supporters in on a pilot basis for the Carabao Cup final on April the 25th, perhaps. So um, those pilots would give us all a, a bit of um, something to look forward to, perhaps ahead of May the 17th, because we all just want to see the supporters back, I feel. Um, let's look to the Midlands and Leicester Tottenham. That could be a, a crucial fixture. I, I think ultimately... Well, we've seen fans back and it was just the home fans at this point when they're getting fans bit back in, when we think there'll be lateral flow testing, vaccines, they're going to have to have home and away support, surely. Well, like I sort of touched upon it, it wouldn't be fair otherwise, but I, you sort of refer, you refer back to what happened uh, sort of in December where it was home fans only. Um, I would hope, I would hope that, you know, both sets of fans are allowed in, otherwise... Yeah, you can see clubs sort of, as I said, sort of arguing that they're at a disadvantage. And for a big game like that, who knows? Like Leicester are looking very good at the moment, you have to say. But sort of you, you think back to last season and the way they nosedived, could mm. there potentially be a repeat? I mean, Brendan Rodgers spoke at the weekend saying, no, we, we it's a different atmosphere at the moment. But in, until that place is secure... I think there's still a question mark over over that Leicester squad. As for Tottenham, I'll be amazed if there's anything on the line apart from Jose Mourinho's job by that stage, <laughs> because things are looking so um, so bad for them, and 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 they may actually be focusing on other things. Um, the unlikely event of a uh, Europa League final, perchance. Uh, I actually think I think that. Um... Spurs could be on the turn, but we'll talk about that one later. I'm going to reflect some of the headlines in the newspaper. I mean, they've got <laughs> fully packed stadium. I think, I mean, the prospect of it ever getting that tightly packed in the next couple of months, maybe, maybe is really hopeful. Um, but the date escape, Wembley. <laughs> and we're going to go to that Simon Peach um, as the England correspondent. And um, we're coming home. The fact that the England-Czech Republic game could potentially be in front of a full stadium, theoretically, maybe maybe a little reduced. What does that mean? And, and ultimately, the chance now of that song of football coming home being banned uh, has gone away, hasn't it? Because it's going to be football's coming home for every single fan around the world. It's going to be a pretty amazing summer. Um shaping up to be that way with the, with the way that this roadmap's been planned out and the way that the squad's looking. 
I mean, my general feeling is that I'd be surprised if we see 90,000 at any of the games. That even the final lateral flow testing can be good, but it's not as reliable as other testing. Um, the vaccines, is everyone going to have a double dose by then? Doesn't sound like it. So I would be surprised if we are sadly going to see 90,000 fans in the ground for some time. But the fact that we are going to have fans in the ground is, is going to be fantastic. Um, it's going, it's shaping up to be a really exciting few months. It's just, yeah, people have got to remain patient, which is easier said than done at the moment in the UK. I was going to add the one thing that um, a lot of the coverage is missed out of the back pages, but obviously goes into depth on is the um, the missing French cartoon character Asterix. Um, it all comes with that, doesn't it? The uh, I, I'm kind of going to be the grumpy Viking and and say that this comes through four tests every single one of those timelines, and it's not really something that can be penned into our diaries, but at least it gives us a sensible pathway, which uh, England hasn't experienced, let's say that in the last past year. Um, I, I want to actually go to all three of you really and, and ask you about the, the moment of impact of when you really sense the fans were there and how much fans, I mean, there's always this question mark, do clubs really take their fans seriously? But oh my goodness, they do now. Simon? What well, the example of, of when the fans were allowed back to you mean? Yeah, yeah, and just the impact on, on you and, and the appreciation of fans, which we always had, but you know the clubs now feel it more keenly. Yeah, I, I suppose it's twofold, really, that um, first and foremost was the last game that I attended with a full house, is, is the date is imprinted on my mind, such, such was that it's March the 3rd uh, of last year. It was Chelsea v Liverpool, FA Cup um, at Stamford Bridge, full house, massive atmosphere because of course it's midweek game all the cliches midweek game under the lights massive uh, opposition and it was a fantastic atmosphere one of those classic sort of Chelsea fans you know they, they love facing Liverpool there's a bit of needle there and because Chelsea played well and you, you sort of find yourself looking back to that game uh, in your mind and going oh how I miss occasions like that um and then we got a brief taste of it when Chelsea hosted Leeds uh, at the start of December. And those, those 2,000 Chelsea fans that, that turned up that day made, made more noise than probably some many weeks when 40,000 are at, at Stamford Bridge. Like they, you could tell they really made the most of it. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that that was, that was one of Lampard's best performances as coach. The team outrun Leeds. They became the first team to outrun Leeds. They they significantly ran further uh, than their team average of the season for a game in that match. And I, I do think the fans had something to do with it because I think they were inspired. So could that, have, if the fans have been in, could it have saved you from sacking Frank? Do you think? <laughs> no, I think it took more than the fans to uh, to do that. I think there were much bigger issues at play. But um, I, I do actually think it, it may have actually helped um, Lampard because of the, the popularity, the esteem he's held in by match-going fans from his time as a player. And Lampard was very much a, someone that bounced off the fans. The relationship was very close. There was a banner, a flag funded for him, in support of him, just before he was sacked to sort of emphasise just sort of what kind of relationship he had. So there may have been some kind of um, bounce factor with the fans being behind him. Um, but yeah, the, the level of performances, I'm not even sure that would have lasted too much longer. Peachy, as you said, uh, Old Trafford won't won't get fans back, which which is a massive shame. But um, you could see the impact at when they played West Ham, when those fans were back for that 
very small window and and then Manchester United came out on top of that if I'm right in thinking it was really you could really sense the impact that the fans had even in that small number so even just getting any number of fans back if it's not a packed stadium will make such a difference yeah I mean Simon was saying about how the date is in his mind of the last game before fans mine was March the 8th it was Man United Man City 2-0 Scott McTominay at the death and the whole crowd erupting and I remember that whole day I documented it on Instagram which I never normally do in terms of and I just did an Instagram story of every little part of the day what it would entail the mix zone do you remember those boys um <laughs> uh, we used to get ignored by footballers we don't get to do that anymore um you and I remember like, the novelty of these hand pumps being everywhere and these signs saying oh just be a bit more careful than you usually did wash your hands which is a shame that people actually have to say that but yeah wash your hands and then yeah, and it's just uh, the plug's been pulled out ever since, and we've had this season in silence. And it's it's uh, yeah, it from a journalistic perspective, um, I'm sure plenty of people have spoken about it before. It, it would be nice to have that trigger when we're all writing our match reports ten minutes from time of the when someone's running down the wing, and you can hear the fans giving you an indication to get your head up. That would be nice again. Um, but but most importantly, just to inject that intensity back into the game. Yeah, some games are, have been intense, and, but the fans missing has really been keenly felt. Um, it's nice to be able to hear players that you wouldn't normally hear, but at the end of the day, I'd rather not. I'd rather be hearing uh, unsavoury chants and things like that. Um, Nursey, how many goals have you missed? Because uh, you're busy tapping away. I, I, I'm just, as a reporter, just, just too many. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean. Simon made a good point there. Sometimes when you have got your head down on your laptop, frantically trying to file, and there's some drama up the end of the pitch in the penalty area, the fans alert you to it. Just give you a, a millisecond before the ball hits the back of the net, so you can you can just about see it. And I'm sure we have missed the odd odd goal because it has been definitely quiet in the stadiums. Um, interestingly, in the Midlands, actually, I feel you know we we've missed the the fans as much as anywhere, if not more. I really felt for Wolves last season, it was the best team the, the club had produced probably since the 50s when they were winning titles. They were they were doing well at the top of the league. They were beating a lot of the top teams, weren't they? And they got to the Europa League um, quarterfinals. And I actually think this was probably the best team since, since they were winning silverware in the 50s. And, and some supporters in their whole lives supporting Wolves would not have seen a Wolves team that good. And they couldn't be there. And I know the fans at Molyneux are as passionate as as they come and of course at Villa this current team earlier this season they're beating the champions putting seven goals past them Grealish is on fire as the best Villa team certainly for a decade and, and there are no fans there to see it so I've, I've certainly felt the the absence of fans very keenly and um, you know my, I'm not actually a supporter of a Midlands team but I, I know the fans um, and many of them have, have really missed out a lot so um, let's hope next season is an absolute dynamite cracker season for everyone to enjoy back in the grounds all being well. Yeah, we, we all hope that, don't we? Um, um, before we go to the break, uh, and we'll have a lot to cover the other side of it, as we look to the big fixtures and to the big clubs in the top four and uh, maybe a little bit of a tussle for survival at the bottom of the table now. I'm going to ask our writers to uh, reveal their, what I call copy, copy room casualty or copy casualty, something they've seen behind closed doors or something they've experienced that they haven't really been able to actually tell the world about as much as they widely would like to, just to give you an insight on the game. I'm going to start with you, Simon Johnson. 
I've got two examples. I hope you don't mind if I go too far back, but I think it's in, in touching with the theme of, of fans and, and how it can help or how you can ignore the help of the fans. I'm going back to the Champions League final in 2012, where I was, um, I was asked to write the front page supplement of the Independent, as well as doing match ratings for them. And if you remember Chelsea, Chelsea Bayern Munich, it was very, very um, tight. It was nil-nil up until like the 83rd minute uh, when Thomas Muller put Bayern Munich in front. And um, I just, with, with the Independent wanting their copy bang on the final whistle, I was head down, oh, Chelsea heartbreak, here, here it goes again. You've got to remember as well, Chelsea finished sixth that season. So their only hope of finishing, getting qualified for the Champions League was by winning the competition. Of course, they'd suffered, come close many, many times. So I was just bashing away, bashing away. And then suddenly I heard this cheer to my left. And uh, because I've been so focused on this deadline, I'd missed uh, Didier Drogba's equaliser. And I just heard the Chelsea fans going crazy. And I just had to laugh because I was just like, oh, right, there you go. But, but the, the match ratings reference, um, I don't know how the guys have felt when they, whenever they've been asked to do match ratings. I, I was also asked to do match ratings for that final, but to file by the 80th minute <laughs> with, with, with descriptions. Um, so, uh, for example, Mikel Jonobi, I gave a six. Uh, and he was one of Chelsea's best players. <laughs> and the thing is, you, you, you can't mark 22 players. You've got so much on. Um, it's very difficult to study 22 players all at once. Um, and then, yes, you come away and, then, and you realise that you've made a mistake. But perhaps when, when fans, etc., readers read match ratings and go, how on earth is he given them that score? That may be a reason for that, that deadlines, etc., uh, means that you perhaps haven't watched that player as, as much as you would have liked. Did Ben Teke get, um, well, Ben Teke came off the bench against Crystal Palace, but yeah, so he wouldn't have got a rating at all would he, <laughs> last night. Um, yeah, exactly. Peachy? Um, I was thinking more more recent, but Simon has just reminded me of the best goal I never saw, uh, <laughs> which was James Rodriguez in 2014 at the American R. Oh, wow. Um, there was a story on the, I think it was the Sunday Mirror, Stan Collymore, uh, had done something about a fan having his ear, an England fan having his ear bitten off, it's something like that. And I was trying to show a guy that I'm sure a lot of you know, Paul Hurst, who was my colleague at the time. I was like, oh, look at this, look at this. And then we just heard this um, almighty eruption. And as we looked up, there was the ball hitting the underside of the bar. And I was like, mm, this might have been good. It was. Um, but no, I, I was just going to bring up, uh, we, we've been sat very close to the to Darren Fletcher, who... Um, is, uh, did a lot of work in the media. I'm talking about the, the former footballer rather than the commentator. And it's just quite interesting. He's been sat in the press areas uh, since taking up the coaching role last night, uh, last week, sorry, last month even, at Manchester United. And it's quite interesting to hear how he operates and how intense he is. And having spoken to him, I think he's quite an impressive football footballing brain. And I, I think he's the kind of person, from, from conversations with him and conversations with other people and hearing how he operates during a game uh, I think he's going to be uh, quite an impressive footballing figure for, for years to come we've had him in the being stu studios and Sir Alex adores him doesn't he I mean he's like his favoured son so um we know why he's got a fantastic mind it's a really nice insight Nursey um I'd just uh, back you up there Peachy I definitely would echo that on Darren Fletcher because we had him at West Brom where he was captain and he was a hugely impressive 
individual and they certainly missed him. I don't think it was any coincidence after he'd left. The next season they actually got relegated. He was a really inspirational um, figure at West Brom. But um, so copy casualty, uh, I was sort of looking to do one off the back of the weekend, really. Someone who hadn't necessarily, an incident that hadn't got um, as much airtime. I was at the, the Leicester, um, the Villa Leicester game. And obviously most eyes were on Grealish, the fact his absence and, and, and the fact that Madison was scoring and, and was going off injured. So really what I'm working up to say, Ross Barkley, it was very interesting. Without Grealish, uh, Villa really needed Barkley to step up. He's getting regular games now, playing in a number 10 role, which is possibly his preferred position. Simon would, would maybe back me up on that one. Uh, and, and as you can tell by the, by the scoreline, the fact Leicester won, ran out 2-1 winners and Barkley got subbed late on, he really blew his chance. Um, Villa needed him to step up and he, he unfortunately didn't. It's sort of 16 appearances now, I think three goals and one assist for Villa since joining on loan. Uh, he's going to have to do a lot better than that if he wants to get in the England squad. So he didn't really feature in my copy much in Monday's papers from, from, from the Sunday game. But it was very interesting how he and Villa missed an opportunity there. And, and if we think Grealish could be out for potentially a month and, and Barkley's someone who could replace him for club and country. And he's going to have to really um, play a lot better. And I, I know he's had some injuries this season. But we're coming up to the run-in now, I feel, and Barclays will be a casualty. He, he will, he, his career will continue to flounder unless he seizes this opportunity. It's such a shame because he'd been firing, hadn't he, with Grealish? Yeah, I mean, there were times earlier this season away at Arsenal, for example, when they linked up in a thrilling counter-attack and against Liverpool, um, they were looked tantalising together. So perhaps in Barclays' defence, he might say, well, I'm, I'm not fully fit and I'm missing Grealish, who makes me tick. But still, he, he has an opportunity now in these next few games with Grealish being sidelined, we expect to um, make a huge impact for Villa and they need him to step up. Uh, and we just didn't see that on Sunday. Thank you so much. I love all that insight. Um, Peachy, I'm going to make you feel better about that Rodriguez goal um, because it was at the Maracanã. Um, and I was doing, even though we were rights holders, quite often for World Cups, you still don't get pitch side. So I was on the roof of a school overlooking it, but I had a ticket for the match but they put the media entrance all literally at the furthest point away and I had to do half time and I worked it out and I was like, there is no way I'm going to make my life. I was sweltering 37 degrees Celsius back and forth, get in and know exactly what's happened at the match, be across it. So I gave it to my, not my live cameraman that does the stand-ups on the, the one that had been running around the country and you'll all know how that poor man had worked his fingers to the bone. And so I gave him my ticket and I was like you know that's that's the reward go and so when he came back at the end of the match I said did amazing did you see the goal and he's like no I was just too tired when I got lunch I was like no <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> you missed it missed it gave away the ticket for one of the best goals ever seen. <laughs> there we go um coming up after the break we're hoping to see some absolute golden goals as well as Chelsea host Manchester United in a classic clash and Klopp and the special one. Could this be the moment the fixtures go in their favour and they turn their fortunes around? We'll be discussing all of that and more after the break.
welcoming you back to be in the know on the week we got a time frame to get the fans back into the game we also have some classics behind closed doors this weekend none other than Chelsea versus Manchester United on Sunday in a tussle for a top four finish I'm going to go first of all to Simon Johnson who practically sacked Frank Lampard in the Athletic tell us uh, how the complications and the fear of reporting a story like that Complications. Um, the complications that if you've got sort of like several sources, that's not the problem. The, the, the problem is that the outcry in, it inevitably causes the the obvious sort of um, uh, upset. It causes the fan base. Um, you, you inevitably get uh, a little bit more criticism um, on Twitter, to put it politely. Um, you also the club aren't particularly enamoured with you uh, at that point because it's it's obviously a story um, they don't want coming out. Um, but you have to sort of stay strong, um, keep sort of double checking your sources, know that the situation is is as you've reported, and then it's all about. It's not that you want to be proved right, but obviously there once you put yourself out there that this is something that's going to happen, then there is a part of you that's sort of thinking, well. You know, this could be, this could go, uh, I could look uh, particularly bad if this doesn't come to pass. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a month long um, story um, that we sort of started, started covering sort of late December. Um, we got a lot of criticism and I could understand why for when we wrote, when we published the first piece about it, which was bang on the final whistle of the Manchester City defeat. Um, but there was mitigating uh, factors in that. We, we'd been hanging on for, uh, holding on to the information for days. Um, and out, funny enough, out of courtesy for, for Chelsea and Lampard, we thought, well, we took, the, we took the gamble, we took the risk that it wouldn't come out. Um, we didn't want to be seen as unsettling um, the club before such a big game. You can imagine the kind of uh, press conference it would have been Frank Lampard ahead of that game if we'd published that story. But yes, yeah, so publishing on the final whistle <laughs> certainly attracted a lot of criticism, um, but we, we couldn't run the risk of it not uh, holding any longer. And, and, and then it was a case of uh, just sort of seeing how long Lampard could hang on for. But he, he, he knew the story, he knew the score within sort of with a, a week or two to go. He was starting to um, his, his, his mannerisms in the dressing room after the Leicester defeat um, he was going up to players and thanking them for their efforts um, they're also players that were clearly um, let's just say they may not have exactly been giving their all for him um, the writing was on the wall and then it was all about trying to find out who was going to take over and that was the, that was the only reason for the delay as Chelsea were trying to find the, the right man to take over, who was willing to take over mid-season, which, which is, can be hard to persuade someone. And Thomas Tuchel preferred to come in the summer, um, but in the end, for fear of missing out on the job of someone else, he decided to, to jump on board. So tell me, Tuchel, can he get Chelsea to a Champions League final this season? No. <laughs> uh, after two, Well, part of me, after 2012, sorry to go back there, you sort of think, having seen that, anything's possible because that was bonkers. We didn't but... see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point, Si. Um, yeah, that was bonkers. But that was a much better... That, that had a, 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 
despite their deficiencies, that was a team full of characters. This team doesn't have characters, and that's one of the reasons why they're where they are in the table. Um, so no, I think progress for Chelsea would be last last season. I'm totally outclassed by Bayern Munich in the last sixteen. If they can get beyond the last sixteen, of course, Atletico Madrid, tough opposition. Um, that would be that would be a positive step for him. Tuchel, has he impressed you? Is he the real deal, or um, they're still not converting those chances that they were still creating under Frank? So, has he proven himself to you yet? There's been promising signs, put it that way. I, th I think it's it's too early to sort of come to definitive conclusions, but he's he's still got the same problems Lampard had in that you know the question marks about quality of certain players in certain positions. Um, but what I've liked about him is he's unlike Lampard, he tended to be quite a reactive coach. If a game was going wrong, he'd let it drift, start making changes sort of after the 60, 70 minutes. It was kind of formulaic. The formation always stayed the same. We've seen Tuchel make some bold decisions. We saw it at the weekend. Uh, not necessarily I agree with it uh, in terms of particularly Callum Hudson-Odoi being subbed as a substitute. But you can see him sort of trying to get that message out there that he's not going to accept any dropping standards. He's trying things and he's definitely galvanised the group. But the question mark is, is it just a new manager bounce or is it something that's going to be long lasting? But at the moment, I've been fairly impressed with what I've seen. He's, he's, he's still got issues in terms of the final third of the pitch. Um, but Chelsea do look more organised and better tactically prepared for matches. Peachy, uh, when West Brom get the equaliser with that centre-back question mark, you, you feel concerned for Manchester United, but they do seem to be finding that resilience in the Fergie time. How are you seeing this fixture? Uh, I think it's a, a bigger for Chelsea uh, than it is for Manchester United. They're six points behind. Manchester United are a second and level with Leicester. Um, obviously, they can halve that uh, and that will be important because... I have been impressed with what Thomas Tuchel's done. Um, uh, as Callum Hudson-Odoi Hudson decision was a bit baffling, but they were perhaps unlucky not to, to win, a, win against Southampton. I mean, for my sake, I'm very happy they didn't, but um, they are going the right direction. And Manchester United have... They're, they're pretty unpredictable at the moment. They, they will they will win games you don't expect them to and then mess up the ones you expect them to comfortably win. And that's why they Manchester City have been allowed to run away with it at the top. So it's a very strange one. It'll be a really interesting watch and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Ten points from the top. Any aspirations that they could close that? Um, close it, yes. <laughs> uh, make it up, probably not. What I find a bit strange is that on January the 26th, Manchester United were were knocked off the top uh, by Man City. They could have, they could have gone back if they'd beaten Sheffield United the next night. I mean, rock bottom Sheffield United. We know how bad they've been, and they they lost. Um, and you can blame VAR, but then the, the games that followed just haven't gone to plan. They've won two of six in the league. They've not been playing particularly well uh, in those matches. As much as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer might want to blame VAR at times, um, yeah, it's the fact that they're up there. Uh, gives them a hope, but look at the way Manchester City are playing. I mean, even against Arsenal, and I know Raheem Sterling's goal was very early, but Manchester I haven't seen Manchester United move the ball the way that Man City did in that for that opening goal, for that winner rather. So yeah, it's it's a tough ask, even if there is a Manchester Derby on the horizon. Um 
reports this week that Manchester United are turning their attentions away from signing Jaden Sancho, which has been was the story all last summer, wasn't it? Because they do think they need to focus on a striker and a centre back. Is that the right transfer strategy from your point of view? As somebody that's covered them for five years now, I do still think they need a right winger. Um, they've not had an out and out right winger in my mind, or an elite right, right out, an elite out and out winger in that entire time. Uh, striker, I do think they need a out and out centre forward. Martial has come under probably too much criticism, but his positioning, for example, again uh, the other the other day wasn't great he was drifting wide too often he, he kind of goes back to his left left forward position when we when United need him through the middle as centre-back they've needed another elite centre-back um but the problem is they've had six or seven highly paid defenders um Phil Jones is still there um people he hasn't played for for, for more than a year now I think it was Tranmere in the FA Cup last season was his was his last match they've only just got rid of Marcos Rojo this was always going to be a difficult period to make the right signings, given the, the ongoing coronavirus pandemic and the impact so that is having on clubs' finances. And that has obviously had an impact on being able to get off these highly paid players off the books. I'd, I'd like to think that they would get those three signings. In a normal summer, they try and get three signings that will improve the squad and send it back a right winger and a striker would be the ones that would be crying out for me. We're talking about that top four. We absolutely must talk about Leicester. James Nursey, you're hosting Arsenal on Sunday. Leicester are hosting Arsenal on Sunday. You don't play for them, I don't think. Um, <laughs> we, we've got to take this, this seriously, haven't we? Um, how much have you seen this side develop? How strong are they? Certainly more possession with Brendan Rodgers um, really, really playing to his strengths as a coach. How much does this remind you of the team that won the title? And, and how much is the belief in the Midlands that it could be a Premier League title coming mm. their way? Yeah, yeah, all really good points, Kerry. Can I firstly just say hats off to Simon Johnson with the Chelsea story and covering, you know, I think it's ah, when, he's had all when colleagues or peers get it right like that, I think uh, you've got you to salute it. So it was really, really impressive and wasn't close to the story. But when I saw Lampard having a go at a journalist in one of his press conferences, I knew he was definitely under pressure because that's normally a telltale sign. Um, <clears throat> with regards to Leicester, interestingly, for this game, I think on Sunday, I see Leicester as the strong favourites. I think he's one win in, in five league games for the Gunners. Uh, Leicester have picked up 10 points from the last 12. They're obviously third. And uh, I think when you compare the team, interestingly, to last year, um, as the boys said earlier, they did just blow up at the end and miss out on the top four. But I, I don't see that happening this time around. And I think it's because they've got a stronger squad. Some of the younger players like Madison, particularly Barnes, have improved and matured enormously. Uh, and they've made some astute signings uh, as well. And uh, I think there's just a bit more strength in depth. Last year, towards the end, they had Chilwell and Madison out injured and they blew up and famously lost to Man United on the last day to drop out of the top four. But now they've coped earlier this season. They've had injuries, but they've stayed up there. And Diddy had a spell injured. He's a key player. Vardy had a, a, a spell out the team. They've, they've coped with injuries better. Uh, and as I say, I think that's that's a sign of, 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 the, of the squad maturing. Uh, Rogers. I think if there were any doubts about him as a coach and as a manager in the Premier League, um, I don't think there can be any more, to be honest. And they're still in the FA Cup, haven't they? It's possible they could, and the Europa League, it's possible they could add silverware this season as well as a top four finish. I mean, 
obviously the fans are missing it, <clears throat> which is a great shame because the supporters at the King Power really make a noise. Um, but uh, I noticed on the final day, they're at home to Spurs and supporters could be back in for that one. So uh, if if it goes to the last day of the season uh, again this year, I think Leicester fans will, will have something to cheer and hopefully they'll be in the stands to see it. One of the other last games of the season will be West Ham versus Southampton. Tell me exactly, Peachy, what you make of Moises. The Moisiah is rising um, in in London what are you making of this rise in form because he's just getting the best out of them and Jesse Lingard are you even slightly surprised uh yes and yes uh Jesse Lingard only because he's only played three times for Manchester United this season so to hit the ground running like he has has been really really impressive the talent's always been there but you wonder how much that that ring rust and obviously the coronavirus, which had impacted last season as well when he wasn't getting that many minutes, would change things. I've spoken to him a number of times over the years and he's had to deal with a lot um, in the last 18 months, uh, 24 months. So it's really good to see him playing his best. I think Manchester United would like him to come back and show that he can do it there. But whether he's found his happy place now, we'll, we'll wait and see. As for David Moyes, I think they've made some smart signings, which is not something you can often say about West Ham in recent years. Um, Thomas Suchek has been fantastic. He's, he's been one of the signings of the last 18 months. Uh, Kufal's looking good as well. I think striker is where they might fall down. Michael Antonio's been doing really well, but he, he, he has a knack, as my fantasy team finds out, of picking up little knocks here and there. So if, if they had another elite top-level striker, I think they could probably maintain this, but my gut instinct is they might fall away at the moment just because the squad that just isn't quite there, despite what David Moyes is doing. That reliance, that concern of Antonio and his injuries, though, I think has maybe helped this side because it's meant, meant that a lot of those midfielders have had to step up and find goals. Um, Bowen is another player who's been an absolute revelation this season. Any chance they could go to the Etihad and cause an upset? There's certainly a great chemistry among that team. You look at that boy band celebration, but um, even Declan Rice talking about the dressing room and how Suchek's just an absolute scream, just having a lot of fun out there, which is an element that takes away some fear ahead of a big encounter like this. Uh, looking at Manchester City's form, there, there isn't much of a chance, but the way that West Ham are playing, if they go there with some belief and can ride their luck, that they've got as good a chance as, as many would have at the Etihad at the moment. You mentioned Jared Bowen. Yeah, he is, he's really good. And I mean, Saad Benarama came in to, for a big price tag and, and a lot has been expecting him and he's only shown flashes so far. So if you get someone like that firing, uh, I, yeah, it's, it's, it must be a nice time to be a West Ham fan. Um, Sheffield United um, come up against Jurgen Klopp. I don't know where he wants to put their hands up against this, but... Um, surely this is the revival, isn't it, of Liverpool? I'd take that one. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Why, why not? Why not talk positively for a change from me uh, in this? In this, yeah. I mean, for, this is uh, in it. It's a massive must-win game for Liverpool. I mean, Sheffield United they, they gave it a bit of a go after winning the FA Cup third round. It seemed to give them a bit of a lift in the Premier League. Started picking up a few points here and there, but they're so cut adrift. Um, it, it, you sort of feel like that the heart's going to go out of them a little bit, and Liverpool really need to take advantage of um, of Sheffield United's sort of rather dire situation. Their their sort of their lack of belief must be kicking in now. Sort of seeing the likes of well, Fulham, you know, sort of stretching away from them, let alone sort of 
is trying to cut the gap to the likes of Brighton and, and Crystal Palace and, and West Brom, um, for example. So I, I just think Liverpool, it's it, it's it just feels like the whole sort of belief has been sucked out of them. The moment they lost their um, unbeaten record at Anfield, they just seemed to to just fall apart. Um, of course, Klopp's been having to deal with stuff off, off the pitch as well. Um, I think at the weekend it was the 18th different centre-back pairing that he's played. But I don't think, uh, as much as injuries have definitely been a factor, that it does has kind of masked the problems they've had at the top end of the pitch as well. You'd expect Salah, Firmino and Mane to be sort of scoring goals on a regular basis, no matter who's playing at the back. And yet they've been a bit inconsistent. Um, for Liverpool, it's all about finishing in the top four. No one would have thought that. Um, before the season started, or even just a few months ago, when they when they thumped Crystal Palace seven nil, um, this is a must win game for them to to try and lift uh, what little belief they they have left in that dressing room. It perhaps helps that they've got that sort of reassuring thing in the back of their minds that the Champions League, as far as the last sixteen tie has gone, that they're in a good position, having won the first leg against RB Leipzig two 0 Peachy, you um, were at Southampton, um, a, a Southampton fan, but were covering Southampton when Pochettino first arrived um, from Spain relatively early in his uh, managerial career. Mourinho coming in and saying he could win trophies uh, with Tottenham. It's looking pretty dire in that dressing room. But if we look at their fixtures ahead of them, Burnley, Fulham, Crystal Palace, Arsenal, Southampton, I'm imagining a bit of a fillip from the Europa League in the week. Can you see that the fortunes turning there? I mean, that does seem like a, a rather kind fixture, run of fixtures compared to what they have been dealing with. I, I also covered Jose Mourinho at Manchester United. And what was interesting about, I can't remember which one of you said it earlier, was about perhaps focusing on the Europa League come the end of the season. That's exactly what he did in his first campaign at Manchester United. And he got over the line and that kind of papered over some of the issues that he was dealing with at the time got him into the Champions League. That might be the best route for them again this time, unless they can really make the most out of this run coming up. I do. I, I questioned the uh, decision to get rid of Mauricio Pochettino at, at the time and to bring in Jose Mourinho. It didn't seem like a natural uh, fit in terms of philosophy and style straight afterwards. I mean, I covered Pochettino at the start of his time at Tottenham as well. I'd like to think he followed me. But... Um, yeah, he was a, he's a really interesting character. He is somebody that was fully focused on the job, could speak English a lot earlier than he let on. Um, he was very tactile with his players, very very good with them, Very, but he would also let them know if they messed up uh, and he wasn't always that forgiving. And he was pretty cutthroat, to be honest. Um, he, he, but, but the players loved him and you saw the best. And yes, he, was, he did have a gifted group, you even you had Luke Shaw, Adam Lallana, Ricky Lambert, Joe Rodriguez, people like that. But at the same time, he, he was the one that got them to another level. So he's a fantastic coach. It's no surprise that he's doing uh, well with PSG, perhaps more so in the Champions League than uh, Ligue 1 at the moment. But yeah, Jose Mourinho's got some got some work to do because it's he has a very talented group. He said that. We've seen it on the documentary. He said he had a more talented group at Tottenham than he has at Manchester United. Well, time to prove it. I wonder with you, um, everyone's saying that for anyone stepping into that PSG job, it is getting the best out of Neymar. And we can see that 
a lot of people always suggested that Poch is better with younger players than or senior players or established players. Um, do you think, from what you know of him, do you think he could be the one manager that gets the best out of him? Um, perhaps, but, but you do make a very valid point. He's the kind of person that will, his style, play, players have to mould to his style. It, I, maybe Neymar is slightly someone slightly that he will go towards him, but it, it, he's already got Paredes, who was someone that wasn't really playing brilliantly for PSG, performing a lot better. He's... he. It, if he can get Neymar to believe in him, then I really think that 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 they can win the Champions League this this season. Um, Mbappe again, he, I don't think his league of form has been as as good as perhaps in previous years, but we we saw what he did to Barcelona. So I believe this can be a, a successful season, and he can do a very good job there. I was surprised he wasn't linked to that job a lot sooner because he he played there, he captained there twenty odd years ago, and it seemed like a natural fit in terms of him taking the next step I just didn't realise that it was going to be because Tottenham had given him the boot. Um, did Chelsea um, Chelsea missed out I mean may, maybe more the fact that PSG got a scoop Simon um, because it looks like they were in the process or, or were planning to bring in Poch. Yeah I mean from my understanding Pochettino was um, on as part of Chelsea's plan B list for want of a better phrase um, as far as long ago as, as a year ago that he was already being sort of seen as someone that potentially could replace Lampard. Uh, they definitely really valued what he could do, um, both his playing style and sort of getting the best out of young players as Simon's touched upon. Of course, you look at sort of the, the Chelsea squad, which has got lots of academy players that to his credit, Lampard brought in. And certainly you could argue that they've kind of been the better performers over the last 18 months rather than the, the expensive buys. But Pochettino was definitely someone that they liked and there was an indication that they were a little bit disappointed that they perhaps acted a bit late that that perhaps they sort of saw Pochettino go across the channel um but then it would have been quite a tough a little bit of a tough sell um to a section of Chelsea supporters of course because of Pochettino's Tottenham roots and perhaps the lack of fans would have would have helped the the uh, transition uh, for a few months, but yeah, his his uh, Tottenham connection might have gone against him among the fan base as well as the fact he hasn't won a trophy. Um, uh, although he, he went on and won one with PSG, sort of with one of his first games, but before that he had not won a trophy. And I think um, you know when you come to Chelsea, you, you sort of need to have that sort of in your CV. Frank Lampard was very much the exception to the norm. So we have um, looked over the runners and the riders. I looked to West Brom, um, Nursey. Is there any any prospect there could be some changes in that bottom three? Fulham finding their way out of it. Sam, any indication he can pull off something surprising? Well, we've seen some improved performances in recent weeks, but he's still won just one of 12 games, Carrie. And West Brom looked doomed. Um, I do. I am impressed with his transfer dealings in January. I mean, to, he reckons it's some of the best business he's ever done as a boss, and he's pulled off some pretty astute buys before. He's in this case, he could only make loans, but to get uh, Mbai Diang, he got in. He's brought in uh, a Turkish midfielder as well, and of course, an England international, and Ainsley Maitland Niles, who's gone straight into the team to play wide midfield. 
and he's made some good good business there. And you look at the recent performances. Simon might have seen that game against Manchester United. They they could have won that if uh, and by Diang had been a bit more clinical up front. But he has made his impact. He's already off the mark, and you can see he's the focal point up front that they need to bring other players into play. And he's a real handful of defenders. And I stress surprisingly, really, they never went into the season with a player like that up front. Um, <clears throat> what was interesting, I thought at, at um, Allardyce's last press pre-match press conference I did, he was talking about what clubs should do if they get relegated. And he was saying, well, uh, Wilder should definitely stay at Sheffield United for the work he's done there. He said Scott Parker's a good young and up-and-coming manager. He'd be worth keeping on at Fulham if if they unluckily go down, because clearly they're making quite a good fist of staying up at the moment. Uh, 22 points, just three points from safety. But he was very, very coy on his own future. And you just can't see Allardyce managing in the championship, really, at 66 years old. I don't think he'll fancy that. I don't doubt he could do it, but I don't think he'd fancy it. So... It looks to me like the Allardyce experiment or gamble is really going to backfire for West Brom because they had a manager in Billich. He wasn't particularly, uh, you couldn't say he was on course to keep them up, but they were making a reasonable fist of it. They've axed him, brought in Allardyce. It's a complete change in style and philosophy. They've not got the results to back it up. And chances are they're going to have to change it again in the summer if they go down. Whereas at least if they kept Billich they would have had a boss um, who's got a champion, um, you know, comfortable in the championship and to get the team out of the championship. He still had the squad playing for him, I felt. So I think it shows the real short-term thinking at West Brom there. They've got some Chinese owners who haven't put much money in and possibly looking to get out of the club if, if they got a good offer. And there's been some short-term thinking there, I feel, and I, I expect it to result in a relegation at the Hawthorns. So West Brom and Sheffield United, we still feel down. Fulham perhaps could wrestle their chances just with that three-point gap as I moved about five minutes up the road. Wholly impartial, but very convenient for me. Um, <laughs> in summary, then, I'm going to ask you all to um, one of our, as we, I did, I did kind of preface a few managers with some positives because um, otherwise we pick out all our clips for the week and we put uh, on the podcast. It just sounds like we're berating managers. So apologies. Um, <laughs> but this one, we don't berate anyone. I ask our writers to pick out their unsung hero, the player that's just not getting the recognition they feel or the paper headlines they deserve because they're that workhorse that's uh, not in the glamour role or just because they've been putting on some performances that have gone under the radar. Um, Peachy, I'll come to you. Um, I'm going to focus on Manchester United, but again, that kind of, <laughs> if someone has a good performance at Manchester United or a bad performance, everyone seems to know about it. But I think Scott McTominay deserves some praise. He's not, he's not been starting every single match, but he's added more goals. I think he scored seven this season, which is many as he managed in his previous 80-odd appearances. Um, He's he's a leader on the field. Um, he he adds. Sometimes I wonder if they get the right dynamic when perhaps they go too defensive with him and Fred. But he's a he's a really good player. He's a Manchester United academy graduate. I remember when he first came in and Josie and Mourinho kind of made up an award on the hoof for him uh, at the end of year awards, and everyone kind of it was a bit of a butt of a joke perhaps to some. But he's really stepped up. He's a he's one of the people that. He's one of the players that whenever you speak to people around United, they always point to him as an example because he's always the one working super, super hard. And he is ridiculously fit. Um, he, I mean, his running stats are, are crazy. When you look during the lockdown, they were having a bit of competition over, I think it was 10K. And some of the speeds he was getting would put him in, well, British Athletics would be giving him a call, I think, in another life. So, yeah, he's a, he's a very impressive player. There's still more to come from him and he, he's very adaptable and can play 
in a lot of different positions. Thank you. It is an episode of Simon Says. Simon Johnson, over to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, sort of following Peachy, really, I'm going to stick with the club I, I sort of watch on a regular basis. And it, it sounds weird to describe Thiago Silva as a sort of unsung hero, um, given the career he's had. But at 36 years old, he, he was kind of like the, the least sexy signing in many ways last summer um, because he didn't cost a penny. Uh, all the talk is about Kai Havertz, Timo Werner, Akin Zayesh, and so on, Ben Chilwell. All the money was spent elsewhere. And there was this sort of this ageing, sort of almost like, oh, he's, he's come here to retire, sort of one last hurrah. Um, but he's he's been different class. And, and, and from you speak to people at Chelsea, it's not just on the pitch, it's off the pitch. Um, they probably haven't had a centre-back like this or a leader like this since since John Terry left the club. And that's why even at this late age, Chelsea are sort of considering giving triggering the option of his contract to stay another year. But I think a lot of his performances have gone under the radar. Um, for me, perhaps I'm a little bit biased because I watch them on a regular basis, but I'd certainly put him in a in contention for that sort of team of the year that the, the Premier League of, often PFA vote for, of course, um, because, yeah, he, he is one of the best defenders in the league, even at the age of 36. Lovely. Nasi? I was at Leicester, as I mentioned, on um, Sunday, um, their, their game at Aston Villa, and there were a lot of headlines about Harvey Barnes, and, and when we think of Leicester flying this season, we think of Vardy as their top scorer, uh, perhaps Casper Schmeichel in defence, uh, Wesley Fofana, the new centre-back, has got rave reviews. And uh, But uh, the guy I, who, who I think is an unsung hero for Leicester, and I notice has played every game for them this season in the league, is Yuri Tillemans. Um, he's only 23 years old, but I think he shows a real maturity in his performances that, that you'd think he's a lot older. He was involved in both the goals on Sunday. Uh, with with good passing with his trademark right foot he's a Belgium international midfielder of course but I think he's he is an unsung hero in that Leicester team because there are a lot of other players there who get the headlines with the goals and the assists or maybe the saves uh, but he's come into the team um, really he came in on loan under Claude Poole uh, did so well you know the club splashed out nearly 40 million on him so I can't pretend that he's a cheap free a cheap transfer but he is really um, justified that price tag Leicester when they invest big money they only do it really uh, on players uh, you can't you know they're not writing out huge checks a lot of the time they simply can't afford to do it but in this case the money's been um, in invested very shrewdly I think he's a linchpin in that team uh, that are third in the table still in the FA Cup still in the Europa League um, showing um maturity belong beyond his, his young years and definitely a key player for me in that Leicester team and he'd be my unsung hero. Yeah there may be a few Belgians in that team that might punish England and the Euros but let's wait and see they're having a great impact. Guys thank you so much uh, to James Nursey, to Simon Peach, to Simon Johnson they have very much brought you up to date you are in the know thanks for joining us on this podcast for being sports we'll be back next week. <laughs>